Uh, let me encourage you, as you are now halfway through the community Bible experience, good work, you deserve an applause. Uh, and, and I want to just say, if you're reading along, community Bible experience, there's still, by the way, six copies of this left if you want to keep participating. Uh, grab one out in the, the parlor. It'd be really cool if we didn't have any when this was all over. You can still participate. Four weeks in, four weeks to go, you're doing a blessed thing. If you are behind, don't worry. If you're more than a week behind, don't worry. Just catch up with week five and make it, instead of an eight-week reading series, you can make it a nine or a 10 or an 11 or a 12-week series. Just read the thing. Just do your best with this. It won't return void. But, but imagine the power. We are doing this as a congregation, reading together the New Testament. We've got uh, almost 100 of those copies of the books out right now. That's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? That's, that's a blessed thing, that we're opening God's Word together to read it together, meeting in groups, talking about it, and I hear good things. It sounds like this is a really exciting way to do this. And so I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Now today, we're going to be digging into a little bit of the book of Romans. This is a horribly complex book. I don't know if you got through it this week or not, but I'm not going to do, I'll, I'm going to preach on just one little part of it, but an important part of the book of Romans. And my week did not work out the way I thought it would, and that's fine. I, I already preached on Romans once this week, and now I'm preaching on a different part of Romans. And here's the thing, I don't know if you'll find this encouraging or not, but uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, uh, Paul is, is the same in person as he is in his writing. He's a little hard to understand. Now, he says this, though, and, and he indicates, he says, but the problem is you can't understand. It's, you can't understand the guy. He doesn't say you can't. He says he's hard to understand, but you have to understand him. Otherwise, people try and use him for the wrong purposes. They try and take his words in the wrong direction. So you're doing a blessed thing. Keep reading it. Read it over and over, especially when it gets to Romans. It's hard to understand sometimes. But Paul has a point, and it's a very good point. Paul has numerous very good things to say. So let's not get confused as we read this. And I pray this morning that Paul's words come through clearly, not mine. Paul himself even says, I preach not with flashy language, but the plain gospel. That's what I pray this morning, that we hear the plain gospel delivered to us. Now, Paul in this letter uh, was headed to Rome. And if you read the beginning of it, and, and I think the introduction in your community Bible experience does a great job of just outlining it, but you can see it in chapter one even. Paul wants to go to Rome. He's using this as the launch pad to go basically towards modern day Spain is where he's headed. He, he's reached a lot of the Roman Empire by this point towards the east, and he says, now I want to go the other way. And, and as we saw when we looked at the book of Acts, we saw that Paul's sort of method of going out was to hit sort of bigger cities, and it turns out the gospel is contagious. So once it reaches those areas, it starts to go out from there. And that's been Paul's way of going about it. You can read testimony of that in some of the letters he writes, like uh, to the Corinthians or to others. He says, look, the message has gone out from you good work. And so Paul's going to go to Rome. There's apparently a large Jewish community there that's come to know Jesus. They have some Gentiles, but Paul has to make some addresses about what his ministry is and where the law fits in this. And he kind of has to defend himself a little bit. 
Paul started by going uh, to the synagogues wherever he went, and over time, uh, he went pretty much straight to the Gentiles over time, and so now it appears that he has a Gentile mission. So when he goes to Rome, and and he's going to go to Rome, he's going to a primarily Jewish background group of people as he is, but it looks like he has a Gentile-only ministry, and so he's presenting to them, no, no, that's not the case. It's for everybody. He's presenting to them the law, which we all knew, which we all grew up with. That was just the pathway. That was the pavement on which we were walking to guide us towards God. But the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what we were waiting for. This is the thing that saves us, not the law. And Paul says, guess what? It was for everybody the whole time, from beginning till now. It's always been not just for the Jew, but for Gentile together. And the power uh, when that comes in and what it does to both Jew and Gentile is remarkable. It's remarkable what the gospel does in its fullness through Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at Romans 10. Uh, you can find it in your Bible. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at 10. We're going to start, we're running start at verse 4. We're really looking at verses 9 through 10 as the key passage. It's also on version. if you're a mobile user uh, out there. Go for it. Starting at verse 4, Paul talks about this fulfillment for all. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for who? Everyone who believes. It's not just for the Jew, it's for everyone. And we heard some New Testament or Old Testament uh, language to that effect this morning of who's going to be redeemed, of the Spirit being poured out on everyone. Christ fulfilled this for all. And now we go on, uh, 5 through 13 is what I want to read. And, and I had high hopes of kind of giving you a, a real, let's dig into all these passages that Paul uses, but let's not. Let's just look. Let's play find the confession. So find the confession of faith in the middle of this as we read it and see if we find the point. It says this, starting at verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. We couldn't do this on our own. God has given it to us. It's there ready for the taking. It's not something we've done by our own effort. He says, uh, it's near your mouth and your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Larry, hold on up there. I'm going to show you verses 9 and 10 here in just a moment, but I'm going to ask you to permit me a biblically nerdy moment, all right? This will be fun, I think. I'm not a nerd, but you might be, so you might enjoy this. So now, okay, go ahead, Larry. What's cool is, all through the Psalms in the Old Testament, you find these these chiastic moments, these uh, biblical chiasms, where you have a thought pattern that goes inward and comes out. So the reverse of what happened at, at the start is what how it closes out. And you'll find it in bigger sections of the Psalms, entire Psalms sometimes that do this. You will also find it in the New Testament. Now, this doesn't seem totally obvious to us, but I do bring this up uh, for a point this morning. 
I usually don't notice these very carefully unless I'm really looking for them. But even I noticed it this week as I was reading this. Now, I, the original is written in Greek. I'm not fluent in Greek. I can mess around with it. I was messing around with it this week just to see what words stood out. And even I saw the pattern. So Paul has it there, and even the original readers probably would have caught this. And it tells us something. He says, if you believe with your mouth, that's the first point, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart, then you get the point. Then you're going to be saved. And then he tells us what happened. It's with your heart. Remember, that was the second point before. Now that's the first point coming off of it. It's with your heart you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The, the point, what's happening and what's going to happen because of that. And you get the point right in the middle of that. Now that's not something you need to you know, hang the whole verse on, but I thought you'd find that interesting, that, that Paul, even in the structure of the passage, builds in the point of the confession and what's going to happen when we make that confession. It's pretty amazing how that's built in there. People would have seen that. You could, it's, it's very clear, surprisingly. Uh, you will be saved. That's the point. That's what Paul's getting at. This is how it's going to happen. This is the formula. This is how salvation occurs. Now, I think we like salvation. I think even in our culture, we like salvation. We might not equate it with uh, the full salvation that Paul's talking about, but, but in our culture, I think we, we want uh, relatively, we want salvation from pain or from difficulty or from hardship. We want a comfortable place to sit and the remote, right? We want these things in our culture. And there's a sense of salvation to that. We want it good. We want happiness. And that means we're being saved from something. We, we want that in our culture. And so sometimes there's this temptation to take, I think, biblical themes and biblical ideas and apply them in our culture, but lose the point along the way. So we want Jesus without judgment, for instance, or we want to be saved and we want to be the ones doing it. We, we can't take anything for free. That's not how things work in our culture, right? I got to earn it. Uh, we, we believe there might be many paths People will say this idea of universalism appeals to us because we want salvation, but we, want to, we don't want to seem exclusive about it. We want others to be able to get it as well. But we end up watering things down when we do that. There is a boundary outlined here for us. This is the confession. There's an in and an out with this confession. And, and one of the things is if we fit in too closely with our culture, one has to ask the question, where are the boundaries then? What, am I really saved or not? Is, is, what, where are the lines? And it's really interesting that I was reading uh, biblical scholar N.T. Wright this week uh, was pointing out in something I was reading of his. He said, as Christians in this culture that we live in, and he's an Anglican priest kind of at the top level, uh, but he says in the, Christian, uh, the world that we live in as Christians, we can be involved in the various businesses and corporate environments and, and work environments we're in or school or whatever. And if we start to look at the boundaries and put our Christian worldview forward, somebody will say, stop it, we don't need that here. We don't need that kind of worldview here. But he says what's also interesting is on the flip side, the same group of people will, uh, when an injustice happens in society, they'll say, well, where was the church? Why wasn't the church speaking up about this? There are boundaries to what we believe, and that's going to come out in our interactions with the world, and sometimes that's not going to be liked. Sometimes it's going to seem exclusive. Sometimes it's going to seem like we're pushing people away, but that's not necessarily the case. But we do have to have a boundary. There is salvation. There is something that comes with that, and there's a confession by which we say we're a part of this or we're not. And I think part of the issue for us is we have a deep desire to belong, I think God's instilled that in us. We want to belong to something, and we want to belong to something that matters. 
in this world. We want our efforts to amount to something. And sometimes we can belong to things that are, that are not quite going to matter, that are not quite going to impact, and we can put great zeal in the direction of something that just isn't quite where it should be. And that's what Paul even says. He says, you guys have put incredible zeal into the law. But that's not quite, aim it a little higher. Just a little higher, and you'll see where salvation is. It's not in the law. It's just above that, in Jesus Christ who fulfills the law. And so Paul tells us the confession. He says, you've got to believe the message. You've got to believe the work that God has done, and that's got to be from the inside out of you. It's got to come. And so Paul is speaking of of those who are uh, invested in the law. There's sort of a legalistic uh, quality about that. But the law has its limits. It shows us righteousness. It shows us what it's like to, to walk with God. But here's the thing. We've all broken it at one point. And Paul makes that point over and over in, in the book of Romans. We looked at it in confirmation today. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that the wages of sin are death. The penalty is there before us. We can't fix that problem. We've got to believe that the work of God has done something to fix that issue first and foremost. And one way that this has played out more in modern culture, I think, is is uh, sort of morality as being the long and short of Christianity, that sometimes we can get legalistic that uh, morality was it. Well, that's the byproduct of the Christian life. That is not the Christian life. But sometimes we kind of bought into this idea, oh, you look the part, so you probably are the part. No, it's got to be believed from inside out, not just acted on the outside. Somebody can live the law, as was seen in the, the Pharisees, for instance. They lived the law to the letter and then some. They invented an alphabet, letters to go with it. And yet they didn't have to believe it to accomplish it. No, it has to be believed from the inside out. And we can't just give lip service to it, right? Just in that same way. So we believe it, or we say it, we, we, it looks like we're doing it. And, and it's just like this idea that I was talking about. We want to belong and sometimes we'll water down the message if we're not careful, and so we combine into sort of a cultural Christianity, and I think we see in our culture where sometimes uh, we have a little poaching of Christian themes that have gone on. Just like I was talking about, like Jesus without judgment, sometimes we have love is, is the term that gets put out. Well, Christians are about love, society is about love, so we must be about the same thing. Well, it's not quite the same thing. We don't define it quite the same way often. Um, or we'll have uh, an idea of salvation, like I was saying, with Christian universalism that some people put forth, but it doesn't really account for sin. Sin is a significant affront to God. The message must be believed from inside out that God has actually done something, and then we believe that, that it's going to change something within us. We can't just give it lip service. Oh, that sounds good. I'll just be a good moral person. That just won't do. And what really gets me is even now, today, we have sort of a belief in many people that we can just mentally sort of ascend in the Christian belief. It's, it's so personal that it's only personal, and we have sort of agreement with, with the, the idea of Christianity, and that's good enough. It doesn't actually need to come out of us in any way whatsoever. That's not at all what Paul is saying. There's, there's a coherence between the belief in what God has done, coming from inside out, but that God has actually done something, and then we're going to act upon it. We'll get to that in a moment. What are we to believe, though? What is it that Paul says we are to believe? It seems like a ridiculous belief in our culture. He says that God raised Jesus from the dead. Not metaphorically, by the way. He doesn't say that. No, that Jesus was dead. He died on the cross, put in the tomb, and what did God do? Raised him up from the dead. He was actually resurrected. It actually occurred. Paul says believe 
that from inside out. And that's going to have an effect on you. And believe the next thing then, you've got to confess that Jesus is the one who's Lord, which means that Jesus then, because of that, because he's conquered death, he now rules your every impulse, attitude, and decision, even down to the deepest parts of yourself. That's the confession that Paul is talking about. Around Christmas time, uh, there was an article in the New York Times by uh, an op-ed writer, Nicholas Kristof, interviewing Pastor uh, Timothy Keller. I don't know if anybody read it. Very interesting. Short article. Got criticized by some, got hailed by others. That's the only reason I knew it was out there is because some people criticized it. I didn't even know the original was out there. And I read it, and I was like, this is pretty good. Um, But clearly... The, the author, the, the columnist, Nicholas Kristof, is coming from a skeptical position about the Christian belief. Uh, and Timothy Keller is an, a reformed Christian pastor uh, who has been at it for a long time and written a lot of very fine, uh, very orthodox books. Uh, and he's sort of putting forth a very good and, and thoughtful but simple defense of the faith in this. So I, I just want to read two interchanges uh, because I think it gets to the issue of, of this belief and this confession. Uh, and not watering it down or changing it in any way. So the first interchange, uh, Nicholas Kristof says, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Since this is Christmas, the Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief, or can I mix and match? It's a good question. And Keller says, he says, if something is truly integral to a body of thought, you can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion can't be whatever we desire it to be. And here's a great example. He says, I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace, and I come out and say climate change is a hoax. They will ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that there have to be some boundaries for dissent or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization, and they'd be right. It's the same way with any religious faith. A great example, isn't it? Now, he then goes on, so they've been talking about the resurrection. One last thing, it's even shorter. Uh, Nicholas Kristof says, so where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian? A Jesus follower? Here's a key question. Am I a, can I be a secular Christian? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Can I be a Christian while doubting the resurrection? And Keller says, I think wisely, I wouldn't draw any conclusion about an individual without taking a talking to him or her at length. But in general, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs as defined by the Apostles' Creed, I'd say you're on the outside of the boundary. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, it's a good question, uh, but it gets to the heart of what Paul is addressing right here too. You know, if you're, part of the, of, if you're on the board of directors for Greenpeace, you can't then be in complete and total denial about everything the organization is about. Just like if you're totally anti-gun, you're probably not going to fit into the NRA, right? It's not going to work. That's how it would go. And same here. If you're totally antithetical to the main confession of Christianity that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and that, he's, that, that means something in our lives, that it actually happened, and that it actually affects change in me and in the world around me, it's not going to work. You're not, you don't know what you're confessing at that point. You're not believing it from inside out. So Paul gives us this 
confession. Let's hear it once more, and let's go on with just a few more points. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Uh, it's, it's declare, profess, acknowledge, confess. Any of those will work for what's up there. And that's why I'm using confession as, as the language I'm using this morning. But if you declare or confess with your mouth, you're acknowledging that this is the reality. That Jesus is Lord and that, and that God raised him from the dead. That it means something that this happened. And when, we, when a person makes a confession or a declaration or an acknowledgement like that, you're taking a side. That's in the very definition of the word. And you're doing so in a, in a public way or a way that can be demonstrated outside of you that others are hearing. It's a testimony is what it is to this belief. If you're justified, like it says, that's putting things right. You know, if I have a word processor and I hit the justify button, what happens? You get those nice clean edges on both sides. Things are put in right order throughout that. Same thing. If we're justified, we're set right with God to walk in the correct path, to move in consort with God and and forward with God. We're no longer condemned. We're pardoned from sin. And we're given the rights that come with that pardon. If you want a more full explanation from Paul, go read Romans 5. He gives a better explanation of this idea of justification. But what's so remarkable about what's going on here, and and as you read the community Bible experiences, you continue to read through the New Testament. When you read Ephesians and Colossians, you get the fullness of what Paul is talking about here in this justification. It's not just personal salvation that's going on. That's a component. That's an important component. But beyond that, what did Jesus proclaim? At every turn, kingdom, 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 kingdom of God. Everything Jesus says is about the kingdom of God. And Paul proclaims the same thing. Yes, it's personal, but guess what? God is reshaping the world we live in as we know it. And Jesus is the king of that world. Are you in or are you out? That's part of the confession. Who's the ruler of your life and the world you live in? That's the confession that Paul is getting at. It goes well beyond me personally, but to us and to everything that God has created, how he's reshaping that. Paul gets at that too. Romans 8 is a great example of that. And finally, when Paul talks about the actual uh, parts of the body, if you will, the mouth uh, that he talks about in the heart, don't get too literal, right? If somebody can't speak, they can still acknowledge uh, that Jesus is Lord. The, the, and, and the heart in the days of Paul doesn't necessarily simply mean the part that, that beats and pushes blood through you, and it doesn't even mean it like we figuratively use it uh, where we talk about our feeling, right? Uh, for, for that day and age, it's a little more comprehensive with almost closer to your brain. If Paul wanted to say it was like a feeling, he'd use something more like your gut. But it's more closer to your brain, your integrated whole self making a decision. That's how Paul means it. If from the inside up, this is what I believe. And I proclaim it in one way or another with who I am, with my body, with myself, with my actions. So what are we confessing in the end? We're confessing that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the rule, the law of my life. No matter where I am, no matter who I'm with, that's how I weigh out the rest of the world is by the standard of Jesus. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. That is, God is not simply in control of Jesus, but God is in control of the world that we live in. And the thing that seemed to have the last word, death, 
now lo- no longer has the last word. In fact, God does. God has shown his control and his sovereignty over that world, and he's proclaiming it in my life and in yours. And the confession asks the question, are you in? Are you in? If we are, we're saved. That's what it proclaims. We are saved. As Paul will say in Romans 6, the old self has died, and we rise united with Christ. We're walking with him by the standards of the king. The belief says, or this belief says, I belong to God's kingdom. This confession says my life is going to show it now. I'm not the writer of the rules. I'm the follower of the rules in this new kingdom. I was, we were reflecting around our house. We were playing some card games recently, uh, phase 10, that kind of thing. We were reflecting around our house the first time that when Stephanie and I were first dating uh, years and years ago, and I went down to visit her in Kansas City and met her grandparents for the first time. Wonderful, wonderful people. I had the, the honor of doing her grandfather's funeral last year, um, and, and he actually asked that I would do it. I, what an honor. Um, they were wonderful people. And, and I remember sitting down with them for, they were game players. We sat down, we were playing skip bow, and I was sitting there with Stephanie and her grandpa and her grandmother, and we were partnered up. I'd never played the game in my life, didn't know the rules until I walked into that house, and I already felt like I was on the losing end of the equation because her grandpa greeted me in Swedish, and I had no idea what he was saying because my only Swedish growing up was, was a good boy and magnifying glass. That's all I knew. And, and so um, you can ask later about why those particular words, but... Um, but, so we're sitting there playing partners and I barely know the rules but they're all experts at this and acting like I should know the rules and so I'd play a card on, in partners and her grandpa's looking at me like why did you play that card and sometimes it felt like they were, they were putting a lot of pressure on me to get it right my partner was and, and here's the thing you can have house rules but none of them created the rules we had to play the rules of the game by the people who made the rules still participating in, in that, that world that I'm in, but we're playing uh, within the rules that are created by Parker Brothers or whoever invented that game. The thing is, you and I, even if we make this confession, we live in a world that wants to proclaim one set of rules, but those aren't the rules we're playing by. We're playing by the rules of the king in the present world order that we live in. And that's tough. That is tough some days to play by a, a different song sheet you weigh out all your decisions by the king. That's what you do. And, and it, it makes it difficult, but we still participate in the present order. Paul will even say that in Romans. Still pay your taxes, still pray for your leaders, all that. Yes, yes, that still participate, but recognize where the rules come from for how you live your life. They're not from the same place. And it's going to stand in contrast. To put it a different way, again, uh, scholar N.T. Wright, he says, those who follow Jesus are called to live by the rules of the new world order, rather than the old one. He says, and the old one won't like it. It's not always going to be well-received. We might get talked down at times. But one last point, and those of you that I posted an article from the Babylon Bee this week that said some pastors say one last point, and they go on for 45 minutes. This is the last point. Don't worry. I'm not going to go on for 45 minutes. One other commentator I read commenting on this, William Barclay, he says, let's make sure that we understand that, that in understanding and confessing this, Jesus wasn't just a martyr for a cause. He's the victor. 
That's part of what we're proclaiming. If Jesus was just a martyr for a cause, then that whole thing I just talked about, about rules and living under those rules, that really doesn't matter. If Jesus was just a martyr, then he's, he's helpful for our morality, and he can inform our worldview, but he really doesn't change anything. He just becomes a cause among many causes that's useful. We can go about our business and live our lives by our own principles. But if he is truly the victor over sin, death, and the devil, all of a sudden the entire world order has changed. We live under a new power, a new control. Our ethics are reshaped, and even death itself has been changed because of this, and we know it. We know it when we make that confession. We say it when we make that confession, and the remarkable thing is Paul's writing to a people, Jew and Gentile, who would have had a hard time even sitting down at the same table to eat together. And guess what this does? It says, now you can eat together. This is now the world is being reshaped from you, church so that you can show the power of God living in you that God is bringing to the whole world. You live by that same set of rules together. Sin no longer has power over you, and you now have a purpose well beyond yourself to show the rest of the world this king and the kingdom that's coming in and bring them in. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. Christ reshapes our very priorities and our rule of life, but the world that we live in is being reshaped right now by the king. And when we confess that, that's what we're confessing. That power is at work in me. I testify to that power, and I'm bringing it to you too. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us this power and that you've given us your Holy Spirit to live out your power in this world because some days it's hard. Some days it's hard to be a follower of your son, Jesus Christ. But you know what, God? It's always rewarding. It is always worth it. And I thank you that when we confess this, we get that power moving through us as individuals, moving through uh, your people, the church, both locally and worldwide. And we can see your power demonstrated regularly if we'll only look. And so, God, I pray this morning that we sitting here would acknowledge with our mouths and believe in our heart that you raised Christ from the dead and that that power now rules in us. And if you're sitting here today and you've never made that confession, boy, today is the perfect day. If you're ready and willing, confess Jesus is Lord of my life. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And receive salvation this morning. Father, I thank you that you've given us this new life. We lift ourselves up to you, not because we are so prideful or so full of ourselves, but because we are so humble and we look to you for our salvation, for the power to live each day. And we pray that as we go forth today, that we would uh, treat each other with great kindness and compassion. And we take that out to our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, and testify to your power in us. Pray this in your name. Amen.